from GreenViz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenViz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, David Crane on what Tesla and SolarCity means for investors. DuPont and Bayer plant the seeds for ag tech funding. What does energy productivity mean? And Boeing's environmental strategy lead tells how she got her job. Our seatbacks are in the full and upright position. This week on 350. It's July 8th, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm here in Green Biz Studio with senior editor Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren. Hey there. How's it going? You know, it's going okay. Uh, sort of normal week after lots of uh, travel and uh, holiday. So Fireworks. Fireworks, yeah. All good. Um, you know, we just uh, been doing debriefing on our Hawaii adventure uh, with the state of Hawaii and just... Uh, very excited. Already looking forward to next year's event and how we're going to make that even bigger and better. But uh, that was a big success. You know, just in, in, in retrospect, it doesn't always feel that way. Sometimes you feel like, oh, we, you know, things could have gone better, but it went really well. I mean, and, and you were, you got to enjoy the fruits of all that too. I did. It yeah. was not a bad place to be yeah. for a week. <laughs> yeah, we've talked about that before. So let's just get right down to it with the Week in Review. One of the evolving stories we've been watching closely is the proposed merger of the two Elon Musk cleantech darlings, Tesla, the famously sexy EV electric car maker, and SolarCity, the solar energy powerhouse. Do we really need to explain what Tesla is anymore? You never know. I know. Some people, maybe they like trucks. Is it an energy company? Is it a car company? Is it a a breath mint, a candy mint? Yeah, anyway. Well, now, as the headline says, we could have Tesla City, and then that would be a whole other thing that we have to get used to. But we do luckily have somebody who is helping us make sense of all of this, and that is David Crane, a guy who's very familiar with energy. He's the former CEO of NRG Energy and now the senior operating executive at Pegasus Capital Advisors, who weighed in with a column this week on will car company plus solar company equal shareholder happiness? Yeah, it's an open question. And uh, one of the things that David had to say, looking through his lens as a uh, energy executive and investor is, you know, what will Solar City and Tesla uh, investors think about this? Particularly the Tesla investors, which are in effect absorbing Solar City. And he had some, you know, criticisms of the uh, of the model, the business model that Solar City does, uh, particularly around this uh, no money down financing over uh, twenty year uh, model, which is uh, was the way that so many. Uh, Solar companies got their really up and going and getting traction, but that's now uh, causing some balance sheet problems, as we've seen with a number of companies. So, yeah, he wrote this piece. It's pretty interesting. I highly recommend it. But I I, I caught up with him just to talk a little bit about it this week. He happened to be walking down the, a street in London when I found him earlier this week. And so, uh, uh, but he, he stopped and, and I just wanted to hear you know, him talk a little bit more about about this from the investor perspective. What do you think Tesla would need to do with SolarCity to make this 
the kind of company that would be uh, welcomed by Tesla shareholders. First of all, I'll start with the branding name. I mean, I, I, the branding. I think Tesla helps a lot. It's got the type of brand image that should appeal to home solar customers. And with the retail outlets that Tesla has and all, hopefully through Tesla, the branding and the other uh, route-to-market infrastructure that Tesla has, SolarC can come up with a new way of selling home solar that doesn't involve a lot of door-to-door selling. I think the second thing on the financial front, and this is more problematic about what's been proposed, is that I think Wall Street just doesn't like SolarCity as a standalone company because the model is just so dependent on third-party financing sources, which are not particularly deep or well understood by institutional investors. And when there are times of concerns about capital, people see something like, you know, Solar City is going to have to raise two to three billion dollars this year to just to fulfill their sales requirements. It's just not a sustainable market for them. Is this something where Tesla plus Solar City one plus one equals eleven? No, no. I mean, on the financing front, I mean, one of the reasons I proposed what I did is since the car business is also a cash hog at this point. I think that the merger doesn't solve – the only way that the merger solves the financing issue, and this is probably what they're going to do, is they had already decided to go away from the 20-year zero-money-down lease because that's the one that requires – that's the big cash hog. If they go more to a cash sales or a cash-plus loan market, the financial requirements on Tesla are much less extreme. So if they want to be part of one balance sheet with Tesla but continue to do zero money down 20-year leases, then I think that the transaction as it stands is in the wrong direction because that's just a lot of cash outflow on one balance sheet. So besides changing that business model, what do you want to see in the next uh, six or eight or 12 months that will tell you that this is going in the right direction? Well, I, I think that... What I would be looking for, first and foremost, is either before the announcement or afterwards, pretty much a full statement by, could even be an analyst state, but I mean a, a, bit, a full a full statement by Solar City, sort of across the board of detailing what benefits will come, how much, how independent is Solar City going to be from Tesla. I mean, how are they getting the advantages and avoiding the disadvantages? I think they do have to address, at least in terms of future deals, the, the corporate governance issues. Right now, if you, the scrutiny that's put on been put on the board and the fact that it's not really an arm's length board of directors, either Tesla or Solar City. So, I guess what I'd be looking for in the next six months is a sign that Solar City is going to get the best of the commercial benefits of being part of the directly part of the Tesla empire, but also that they've been responsive to these concerns that have been raised by virtually everyone about the way this transaction went down. I have to ask you, are you an investor in either Tesla or Solar City? No. I do I do follow the Solar City stock on my uh my little on my iPhone. But uh no I've never invested in. Why why do you follow Solar City? What what is it about that that, that becomes an indicator of something for you? Well, I mean, this sort of gets to the conclusion that you got me to write. I mean, Solar City, whether we like it or not, is is the bellwether for the solar industry at this point. I mean, I used to divide into home solar and big solar since there isn't a, you know, a dedicated big solar company anymore. You can tell the general health of the industry, the general perspective of Wall Street about the sector based on how Solar City is doing. 
So a lot of things for us to be watching about the Tesla Solar City hookup. Um, and obviously, uh, it has to be approved by shareholders, and and uh, we need a ways to go. But uh, that's not the only uh, major solar player that's in play this week. Yeah, kind of interesting. Just down the street from us in Oakland, Sungevity, another player in residential solar, is going to be going through a merger of their own that will take them public with a private equity group called Easterly Acquisition. So obviously not sort of the prototypical Silicon Valley IPO that a company like Tesla has gone through, but interesting to see this sort of rejiggering consolidation happening in the solar market. And obviously we'll be watching how that plays out, not only on the residential side, uh, but into the commercial sector as well. Well, as David was saying uh, in the clip that that the balance sheets of these companies, given the amount of financing that they had to do for their customers, turned out to be not so healthy. And so that was a similar story, uh, or not dissimilar story, for Sungevity. Uh, and of course, uh, they are doing this now re- reverse IPO, where they're going to be absorbed by an already public shell company, in effect, mm-hmm. uh, which makes them public without having to go through the uh, pain and suffering of filing an actual mm-hmm. IPO. Uh, but yeah, this is uh, this is one of the growing pains, I guess, of a of a nascent and fast growing industry. And if we are going to, you know, continue to you know, get solar reaching grid parity and grid scale and hit all the renewable energy goals that everybody has for it, uh, we're going to see uh, probably some craziness, some more chaos before we see the order that we need. We had a really great piece from our senior writer, Barbara Grady, that looked at the state of the agriculture tech or ag tech field, and specifically what two companies that you might not think of immediately when it comes to food are doing in that space, and that is Bayer and DuPont. So Barbara's here with us now, and I'm curious, how what the heck do these two companies have to do with anything related to food or ag? Well, Bayer has a division called Crop Science, and DuPont has a pretty new division called Pioneer, and both of them are looking at um, how to get more productivity out of farming and how to use all these ag tech things that seem to be coming out of research universities in Silicon Valley and so on. So kind of in the Monsanto realm of some of these ag productivity plays and all of that. Yeah. Uh. I'm also curious, though, um, how is this fund that they're proposing different from some of the others that are out there? I know there's something called the Ag Tech Fund that we covered when it was announced, but then you've got all sorts of venture capitalists like Google Ventures or even like the Bill and Melinda Gates in this field. Um, So what is the void they're looking to fill? So ag tech has become a hot new area for sure. A lot of money is being poured into it relative to what has been done in the past. Ag tech investment doubled last year from the year before, according to Ag Funder, this organization that tracks that stuff. But still a couple of things. It's still kind of small compared to the size of the global agricultural industry, which is something like $3 trillion. And secondly, what these guys, what Bayer and DuPont and their partners in this fund who are Finisterre Ventures, which is an agricultural venture capital firm, and Cloudbreak Advisors, which is a private equity firm that focuses mostly on agriculture, I think. They say that there's what's missing is kind of funding proven concepts to get to commercialization. So not just great ideas, but, but ideas that have proved to actually work scientifically and have a kind of decent business model but just can't get from the lab to commercialization. 
We hear about that commercial valley of death and energy storage and some of the other high overhead, capital intensive, clean tech fields as well. So I'm inter- it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. I'm curious, though, do we know more specifics about what they might be looking to invest in? Yeah. Well, for one thing, they said the average size of their deal will be 500000 which they say is roughly 10 or 8 to 10 times the size of kind of typical ad tech investments. But then they're going to look at like three or four very specific areas. One is digital agriculture, that whole precision ag that's so hot these days, using big data analytics and stuff in the field. Two is what they call biologicals, the hottest area of which is using microbes and microbial solutions as crop protection instead of chemicals. So kind of replacing chemical fertilizers with with natural microbial and bacteria solutions to get rid of invasive species and pests and all that kind of stuff. And then genetics, plant genetics. There's a fairly recent breakthrough in genetic engineering called CRISPR, which applies to basically all plant and animal life. It can be used, and and they're going to look at how to apply that in um, plant genetics to improve productivity and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm sure it raises lots of issues, GMOs, all kinds of things. I'm sure we'll yeah. hear lots more about. Supposedly, this one is not is different from GMOs in that it's not transgenic. Um, so they think it'll have a little more kind of carrying capacity. All right, well, we'll see about that one. But you caught up with them to talk a little bit more about some of this, right? Yeah, I did. I spoke with um, the Finisterra Ventures lead partner about what they hope to do. And uh, his name is Arana Kukutai, and this is what he had to say. Well, I think, you know, definitely the the intent with Radical is, as an accelerator, as, as the name sort of would suggest, really, um, to accelerate the progress of seed or early, very early stage, both technologies but also companies um, in some cases. Um, some of these initiatives won't necessarily be you know, a company as you might recognize it from a Series A you know, startup company standpoint, but where you've got you know, a technical founder, and you may have a business person involved, although not always, in helping really develop the key pillars you need um, in a company that wants to um, move to that next level of becoming a, you know, and the next level typically is going to be a Series A financing for a company that is looking to commercialize some technology that they have either developed themselves or, um, as we see more of in agriculture, they're, they're commercializing technology that may have come out of a public research institution, including universities, um, that have made substantial progress on getting a proof of concept piece of intellectual property. So, you know, that that's where we think there's a lot of leverage opportunity. And globally, there are billions of dollars spent every year on advancing agricultural and food. Ag tech, definitely an interesting space to watch. Senior writer Barbara Grady, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome.
so jumping into the world of energy, we had an interesting story this week from our senior writer, Heather Clancy, that ran under the headline, What Does Energy Productivity Mean? So joining us now is Heather Clancy. How's it going, Heather? Hey, Lauren. How are you doing? Good, good. So let's go with the the lead that is posed in the headline. What does energy productivity mean? <laughs> well, actually, I wanted to say what the heck is energy productivity? <laughs> um, but, but for me, it, it, it comes down to the, the second word, right? Productivity versus efficiency. And um, to me, this is another example of how the dialogue around various sustainability initiatives is rising to this the CFO level or to the, the CXO level of, of companies. Productivity is a measure that most business executives can get their arms around. It, it, it means something to them, whether it's based on uh, sales or, or income or some unit of, of product shipment or, or, or production, uh, if you will. Um, it means a measure of how the company is doing, not a me- measure of how I'm saving money, how I'm how I'm like cutting costs or so forth. It means my company can produce more with less essentially. So for the, I think the reason this phrase has come into vogue is that the, the companies that have made advances with specific energy efficiency initiatives that have cut out, if you will, the waste are now looking for ways to can ramp up their production, ramp up their sales, ramp up their, um, their, their ability to grow while at the same time, saving on that energy, saving on the costs, um, per pushing it in, pushing it from fossil fuels into renewable. So it's a, it's one of these subtle but significant shifts in, in, in the way that the language that, that people are using to describe different things. Interesting. And I know you caught up with Mark Kenber, who's the CEO of the Climate Group. So let's hear what he has to say about the rise of energy productivity. There are a number of reasons why energy productivity as a term has become sort of part of the the energy and climate lexicon. Um, And and the way I would frame it is that energy productivity is the macro to energy efficiency's micro. To to improve your energy productivity, which is your uh, output per unit energy or your profit per unit energy or your sales per unit energy, depending on which metric you choose, you will need to invest in a whole suite of energy efficiency opportunities. So one is it's a way of aggregating what may often be a large number of quite small projects and investments and looking at the overall impact of those at the, at the scale of the company or the city or in the, or in the country. And therefore, and, and particularly at national level, you know, thinking about energy productivity uh, is important because it is a measure of, it's one measure of the company, of a country's productivity overall. And, and as we know, one of the big challenges around the world, particularly in the Western world, since the financial crisis in 2008, has been the remarkably sluggish productivity growth. And you know, one of the reasons that people have said, argued that real wages haven't risen, that the economies haven't rebounded from the, 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 the recession after the financial crisis, as quickly as economists would have expected, is because productivity growth hasn't uh, ha- hasn't accelerated. And one element of that is energy productivity. It's traditional to talk about labor productivity, capital productivity, and uh, in some way or other total factor productivity, but not uh, dis- uh, about energy productivity. And given that energy is such an important issue at the moment in the context of climate change, but also, you know, 
price volatility, uncertainty whether you know energy prices are going to halve or triple. Um, having a, a macro, you know, company, city, or national level measure of how well are we doing in terms of our energy use, which in many sectors and parts of the world is a, a very significant element of, a, of an organization's cost structure, is a useful metric and one that uh, C-suite uh, directors, other senior management will be looking at, will can look at, can use to compare with other measures of productivity, profitability and growth and so on and so forth in a way that perhaps they wouldn't do with energy efficiency. It's, it's in no way in no way meant to supplant energy efficiency. Rather, it's in another angle on it is it's a tool to elevate energy efficiency as um, both profitable, which we know it already is, but also a very core part of um, any climate change sustainability uh, or, or sustainability strategy. Energy efficiency doesn't doesn't appear to many people, particularly those who aren't involved in energy efficiency directly, as not being very sexy or attractive. Um, it's not seen to be as exciting or as valid or whatever as as renewables and clean energy and storage and grids and smart systems and all the rest of it. And I think energy productivity, using that language is a way of saying, look, this is a positive thing. Productivity is about growth. And often, you know, linked to that is people will often often invest in energy efficiency when they're in a consolidation or a downward part of the business cycle as a sort of cost saving in the same way that it might lay people off. And that's the absolutely the wrong analogy because energy efficiency investments are highly profitable. But using productivity language as a way of reinforcing that, that this is about not something you do to cut costs, this is something you do to increase growth. So it's a, a growth part of a growth strategy, not a retrenchment strategy. So efficiency is absolutely part of the productivity equation. It's it's the way you get to the place where you can, it's kind of actually like right-sizing your operation and able to, to, to look beyond and to be more innovative about uh, about how you're going to grow while same, at the same time using energy as a way to do that. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, it's, energy is one of those costs, costs of a business now that is can be completely predictable if you invest in things like renewables. If you do not, it will be totally unpredictable. You could be off the grid. You could, I mean, so it, it's just become this competitive thing that's so far beyond just whether or not you're burning more fossil fuels. I mean, some, I mean, let's be real. Some executives still don't care as much. Some of the people, they just don't think about it as much as, as you and I and, and, and you and, you know, we, the, the people um, listening to this webcast do, this podcast. Um, but it's part, efficiency is definitely part of the equation. It's just the, the, the way to get to the place where you can, where you can be innovative and grow. And one of the interesting sources that you cited in the story was Molly Webb, who is the founder mm -hmm. of Energy Unlocked. What is Energy Unlocked? And did she have anything sort of interesting to add on this front of the difference between efficiency and productivity? Yes. Yeah, so what, what she's doing and, and helping to bring attention to is is finding the, the organizations, the companies and, and so forth that have um, – things they're doing or, or technologies that they're providing that help other businesses ramp the productivity, uh, you know, their own productivity more quickly. So for example, um, a technology that could uh, increase your output while reducing your energy and you know, what, what ideas can you gain from other businesses? So what she's trying to do is bring attention to this. There's a couple of lists, um, emerging, um, right now there's the EP 100, which 
really highlights the, the, the companies that have made a commitment to improving their productivity by, by really focusing in on the, on the energy. Um, and the, uh, what Molly and her organization are helping bring attention to is the ways to do this quickly and scale. So the, the organizations out there that have a good idea that can help other companies um, advance their own energy productivity initiatives more quickly. So that's what they're doing. Um, and you feel, I think there's these two great sort of, if you will, lists and, and, and rankings that are coming out that, that other companies will be able to, to watch and, and learn from the EP100 and then the Epic list that Energy Unlocked is working on. That, that It's not necessarily a list, but it's a competition to bring attention to the ways that, that organizations are doing this and, and so that, that others can scale more quickly. Let's hear from Molly about what she's learning so far as far as how companies can optimize for energy productivity. Energy efficiency is about reducing energy. Energy productivity is about the cost of energy. And I think we're entering an era where energy, electricity, or other types of energy are going to have different costs based on when you use them or whether they're easier to transport, deploy, um, or not. And that differential in cost, I think, is going to be a big driver for change. So that's why productivity becomes a useful framing, because you can start to say, it's not just about reducing energy in, a, in, a, in isolation, it's about understanding the cost of that energy in the context of the system and how do we optimize for that. Now, in a perfect market, which we don't have around energy or transport or you know, electricity, you would these price signals would give you a very good sense of, <laughs> um, you know, in theory, the lowest cost electricity is a renewable um, electron, you know, zero marginal cost solar or something. But in practice, that's not always the case. So we do have to be a little bit careful if these price signals are not actually delivering the right message. But in theory, that's the direction we're moving. Yeah, it's interesting to hear when you think about a group like the EP100 in particular, definitely seems like a variation on sort of the renewable energy 100, um, Mm. sort of these different collaborative cross-sector groups that were that we're seeing emerge um mm-hmm. is, is there anything else you would say about sort of where the concept seems to be resonating so far well i think one thing to think about is is it's a little just disingenuous for a, a country like the united states uh, or or even australia to to tell other countries that they have to curb their energy growth, right? Or, you know, the growth of their, their economy, essentially, um, and not use as much energy <laughs> as, as they have been. That's kind of, that's just not going to fly in a place like India. Right. So where you are seeing something is you are seeing this concept really catch on in emerging economies, I think, because they need to grow and they need to do so in a responsible, um, if you will, productive manner when it comes to how much energy they're using. And so that it's kind of like when you, when you think about, innovation in general, the place where wireless caught on most quickly was in, in places like in Europe that, that didn't have a lot of infrastructure, the landline infrastructure in place. So they kind of, you know, leapfrogged the United States. We're actually in, in many ways catching up. But the same thing I think is going to happen with energy productivity. Um, it may even catch on more quickly in emerging economies because they want to grow and they want to do it in a way that other, that other countries haven't done yet. So, and Molly also had some thoughts on this. So I'll I'll throw it back to her. 
it's resonating with the high-level policy audience. It's resonating in, in countries where they don't want to be told to use less energy. They want to be told to use it smart, better, effectively to enable the kind of transition that we all know we need to, to get to. Pretty fascinating stuff, and I'm sure this is something that we'll continue to see evolve as more companies jump into the fray and start talking about energy productivity. But senior writer Heather Clancy, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Let's turn to the 350 podcast producer, Soraya Melkonian, uh, who had a piece this week, uh, an interview with one of the lead sustainability strategists uh, from Boeing. Um, Tell us a little bit about how you came to interview Julie Felgar. Yeah, so I saw her on um, the stage at Greenman 16, uh, and she was talking a lot about biofuels and all the potential behind there. And... I thought it was really interesting. Um, So apparently biofuels have the potential to cut aviation emissions from 50 to 80%. And I mean, for for me, the first thing when I hear biofuels is that red flag of um, kind of that indirect land use impacts and things like that. Food versus fuel. Yeah, exactly. Um, But a lot of what she was talking about was how... For example, they can use uh, chicken fat, and, and they um, they've started this search at like Tyson's chicken plants, the largest um, poultry company in America, based in Arkansas. Um, and how in China they're looking at use cooking oil and other things like that that don't use that aren't so um, agriculture heavy. And aren't they also growing specialty crops like jatropha yes. for use? And so things are things that were never were food to begin with. Yeah, and it is that indirect land use um, controversy, but their kind of search for this holy grail biofuel is very broad right now. It's, yeah, in the U.S., in China, in the United Arab Emirates, um, in South Africa, Brazil, like they, they've just put their feelers out and they're looking at all these really interesting different ways of finding biofuel right now. Given sort of what you're talking about, this crazy geographic footprint that they have to play with, even in one area, like biofuels, did you get a sense from her of sort of what it's like to operate in the context of an organization that's that large? Sort of, first of all, how you even get in that job and then what you do day to day? Yeah, that's exactly what I was interested in. Like how, so she's the managing director of environmental strategy and integration for Boeing, but how do you do something with that big um how do you manage that um she talks about how she got into it through the international operations and policy side um and how that actually was helpful in her transition to sustainability i've always been drawn to um environmental work and uh, advocacy i am from africa originally um i grew up in a a very nature-rich environment and on a farm 
So I have a deep appreciation for protecting our planet. And I'm also the mother of three sons and two stepsons and, and want to make sure that I leave behind a place for them that is as good or better than when I was born. And so, you know, from, from, for those personal reasons, I was drawn to it. Um, I had not had work experience to date, um, in, in sustainability or environment specifically until I started to, to work the topic for Boeing. Well, it was really interesting. So I, I did work in the Washington, D.C. office of Boeing um, as a director on international operations and policy. I was primarily focused on the Latin America and the Asia region and all of the business that we were doing in that area. And so that was fascinating from a sales and a trade perspective and immigration and all, all sorts of policy issues. But when, when Boeing commercial airplanes really started to focus on um, what I would call a revamped environmental strategy, um, a, a piece of that related to biofuels and how could we help create this alternative fuel for, for air, airlines. And necessarily it has to be a, a, a global solution, but local in implementation, right? So you have to be able to work internationally in, in multiple different countries and um, ensure that you can set up a framework within those countries and or regions to push for the development of a biofuels industry. So I got involved because the environment team came to me in Washington, D.C. in my role and asked me how could I help um, support their work from a U.S. government perspective as well as from the international government that I was dealing with and how could I help enable that. And to be honest, Soraya, there, there are a lot of issues that, you know, you deal with in the policy world that can be very contentious over time. And this issue was one where so many people are motivated by it and want to help solve the emissions problems um, around aviation and see this as not only in a benefit to solving an emissions issue, but also an, an enabler of creating innovation and jobs within local regions and also supporting, um, you know, uh, agriculture in regions. So it ended up being this kind of perfect Venn that no matter who I went in and spoke to, uh, they all grasped onto this as being a good idea. And it was really fun for me to deal with. So not only did it have the positive impact of, hey, this is great for the environment, but this is such an innovative space that is just interesting and fun to talk about. And that's how I ended up initially getting engaged. There was a, a comfort space in it um, from a political and policy and stakeholder management um, perspective, uh, but there was uh, certainly a challenge in terms of understanding the technical aspects around, particularly in the aviation community, around, um, you know, biofuels and right. the product development that we do and the aerodynamics and uh, aeronautics and, and all of that surrounding it. So I would say that a half of it, there was a comfort space, and, and that's why they asked me to come and do the job, because I know how to manage in that global space of associations and NGOs and multilateral organizations. And then the challenging and fun part for me was learning some of the technical aspects as well. It's always interesting to hear the path that people take to get to their job. And at, at the Green Biz Executive Network, the peer-to-peer uh, -peer membership group of sustainability executives that uh, our colleague John Davies runs, we often go around the room and these are CE sustainability execs from big companies and everybody got their job 
through a different channel. Some or came through a different part of the company, assuming they came from within the company to begin with. They came from government affairs. They came from operations. They came from engineering. They came from marketing. They came from investor relations. They came from uh, R and D. Uh, some so it's 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 just fascinating to hear you know why people end up in these jobs. So did she give you any advice for other people looking for jobs? Yeah. So I asked her directly, like, what advice do you have for young people who might, um, you know, like to have this large impact? And uh, and what she said was kind of you have to kind of shuttle back between this giant vision and really like actually knowing what your business is and knowing where kind of the pressure points are. I mean, I think that it's great to want to solve huge global issues, but at the end of the day, you have to understand that to solve these huge issues, you need to be able to navigate through the business process to do that because you need to be able to work in a company, understand the company's processes and the constraints around the company and the business strategy and plan and identify how you align what you want to do from an environmental perspective to that strategy um, going forward and how you can fit in best so that you can work within within the process to be you know successful at the end of the day and typically what that means is you work in small incremental steps going forward you understand the global issue and you bring it down to how relative it is within your space or your business that you're working in. So you have to have a long-term vision with a dedicated step-by-step plan on how to get there most effectively. I I had to be very inquisitive um, when I stepped into the job and had to understand that it's just a fact. I I just didn't know enough to know (laughs) what, what we needed to do at the end of the day. I I came into a a job that, you know, my predecessor had done an excellent job, but I had to really step back and learn the business side and learn the constraints and learn not only the business constraints, but what the technological constraints were in what we could do and couldn't do. And then, um, you know, overlay that with, well, what type of business realities do we have? Um, So, you know, I, I, I always say that, um, you really have to be able to understand the entire realm um, of the space that you're working in. Sometimes that takes a little bit of time, but I would encourage people not to be daunted by that um, if they do step in and they haven't been in this type of role before, but to use it as an opportunity to learn to learn more about the business space. I like it. So micro, macro, we're keeping the, the whole picture, but, but not losing sight of the day-to-day. Interesting stuff. So Soraya Melkonian, the maestro behind Green Biz 350, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. And that's our 350 podcast for this week, episode 37, if I'm counting correctly. Uh, You'll always find links to the organization's stories and events we mentioned in these episodes. Just go to greenbiz.com slash 350. Thanks to our podcast director and reporter, Soraya Melkonian. Uh, Send us your feedback and ideas and comments. Just mail to 350 at greenbiz.com. Don't forget to add appropriate postage. Uh, (laughs) 
I don't know what that means. We'll see you back here next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. For all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next week, have a great day. 